Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. And it is absolutely hard to believe. Again, we said this last episode, but it was one year ago that we were in California and we had the opportunity to meet so many people here, so many great stories. And, and we shared them with you over the past year. And today is officially the last of those conversations. It's, it's hard to believe it's taken us this long to get through them, but there's been a lot of good stories to share. I mean, this, I, I mean we, we were interviewing five people a day. Yeah. In California. That's crazy. That's crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's hard to believe. Uh, But for today, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit with Lyle Beckman. Uh, Lyle is a night minister with the San Francisco Night Ministry, a ministry that provides care, counseling, referrals, and crisis intervention to anyone in any kind of distress every night of the year between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. What were you doing this morning at about 3 a.m.? I was probably sleeping. Yeah, I, I was studying the back of my eyelids as, as well. <laughs> um, but it, it's just a remarkable ministry. Look, I mean, these these night ministers have been out there every night for 52 years. Every night, a night minister has been out there walking the streets with the job of caring for the people who are out when most people have gone in. And, and Lyle has been at it since 2004, and obviously they were at it for years and years before that. But we had a great conversation with him when we were in California. And so with that, welcome to episode 47, The Night Ministry Saunter with Lyle Beckman. Welcome to the Sandbox. Tell us about uh, San Francisco Night, Night Ministry. The, the simple answer to that is that we do crisis intervention, counseling, referral services, and a ministry of presence every night of the year from 10 p.m. until 4 a.m., and we do that primarily in two ways. We have volunteers who answer our crisis telephone line, and we have paid, ordained clergy who literally walk the streets of San Francisco every night. And in our almost 52-year history, we have not missed one night. Wow. Not one night. Not one 52 night. 52 years. So. Wow. Wow. How many nights are you out there? I work five nights a week. Okay. And then we have 10 additional assistant night ministers who fill in the nights that I cannot work. And I got to imagine every night is, is somehow different. It is. So in the course of a week, uh, earlier in the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, there aren't as many people out Mm. generally. And then toward the weekend, you know, especially Thursday, Friday, Saturday, a lot of people are out. Mm. So we tend to meet also a wide variety of folks. So uh, we talk with people who are sleeping on the streets, living on the streets, uh, people who are just hanging out, people who work the night shift, Mm -hmm. as well as people who are uh, partying and just enjoying all that San Francisco has to offer in Mm -hmm. the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And you walk a, a variety of different neighborhoods? Every neighborhood in San Francisco in the course of a two-week period of time is covered, and these are the neighborhoods where we expect to find people out. Okay. And there are a lot of 24-hour coffee shops and donut shops and things like that. There are uh, bars and clubs in just about every neighborhood. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's something about uh, San Francisco Night Ministry, but let's, I would love to hear about you and, and, and your story and, and how you feel kind of drawn to this ministry in particular? 
Uh, I'm a cradle Lutheran. Okay. And uh, born in Nebraska, grew up in Minnesota. Uh, had a great uncle and aunt who raised me and adopted me, and grew up in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but had the Lutheran nurturing early on. Mm-hmm. So very active in our congregation. Uh, sometimes I, I tell the story that when I graduated seminary, I thought that I knew where God was calling me, and mm-hmm. I thought that it was um, a middle size uh, community in the Midwest because that's what I knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my first call was to a two-point parish in Union City, New Jersey, uh, <laughs> and North Bergen, New Jersey. <laughs> so... Um, way out of my comfort zone. So yeah. here I am in Metro New York in communities where um, the primary language was Spanish okay. or Romanian, depending on what part of the community you were walking in, and just all of the urban stuff that I really hadn't mm. been prepared for. Mm. Uh, then from there, I went to Hartford, Connecticut, and I was in a congregation that... Um, was a little bit in denial about their surroundings. So I was the first pastor they had who did not speak German fluently. Really? They were all German immigrants from after World War II, and the Hmm. neighborhood around them was incredibly poor. And we were right in the middle of rival gangs in the city. Hmm. And um, it was... It was, again, uh, a hardcore, tough inner-city neighborhood. I heard Mm -hmm. gunshots every night for the first six months that I was there, and I lived right next to the church, so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I witnessed a lot of violence and crime. And and so the young folks in the neighborhood, and again, it was primarily Spanish-speaking neighborhood, uh, were breaking into our building uh, almost weekly, not to steal anything. We had a gymnasium, and they wanted to play basketball. That's all they were doing. Breaking in to play basketball. Right. So it doesn't take mm-hmm. um, you know, anyone with a, a lot right. of sense to figure out that if we cut the chains off the doors and right. we started a program for these kids, we could really provide a great service. Mm-hmm. So we actually did this. We, we talked with the Police Athletic League. Um, they were looking for a site to start a new program. They came in, and uh, within a few months, we had basketball players in that gym, mm. um, oh, probably 12 hours a day, wow. six wow. days a week. <laughs> and a boxing program, and uh, of course you get these young folks, and then you you start talking with them and you realize what the need was in their lives. And mm-hmm. so um, the, the police athletic league couldn't provide an opportunity for them to have any spiritual conversation. So the congregation I served started Street Alternatives which is a program to initiate conversation with these kids who, for the most part, were connected to gangs mm-hmm. and drug dealing and drug use. And um, now You said you were in the middle of, of rival gangs there. Did you have rival gangs, you know, kids from rival gangs playing? Yeah, uh, exactly. Wow. That was one of the nice things about our location. Yeah. Uh, and the Police Athletic League started this concept, said, you know, you can come in and play, but you had have to leave every item that 
defines you in terms of your gang outside these doors. Mm. And deliberately, they matched people up in teams that were from rival gangs. Hmm. And uh, it worked very well. And so what was the, I'm curious, what was the effect of them playing on the same teams and kind of maybe breaking down some of those barriers? Did it, did it have an impact on, on the neighborhood as far as what the gang culture was? I think it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly, then uh, the congregation was also involved in some community organizing, so we got mm-hmm. leaders of the gangs together for conversations quite often. Uh, you know, the, these uh, men, primarily in the gangs, knew each other from other walks of life too. I mean, they went to school together or their families were related to each other. Mm -hmm. It was the interesting thing about these gangs. But uh, we did get them to a point where they could talk a great deal about their own frustration and fears and anxieties about being part of a gang culture and their hopes and dreams for their own lives. Um, It wasn't long before some of these young guys would talk to me and say, well, my girlfriend is pregnant and or has just had a baby, but the Roman Catholic priest won't baptize the baby. Will you do that? And of Mm -hmm. course we did. And before we knew it, uh, sitting in the congregation uh, with all of these older German-speaking immigrants were all these young Puerto Rican couples with Mm. babies. Mm -hmm. And and by the time I left that congregation, the congregation was two-thirds folks whose language was Spanish primarily, or these young Puerto Rican families wow. that had joined the church. And, um, how, was that, so, yeah, how was that received by the German-speaking people in the congregation? I mean, I mean, a lot of times we hear, oh, yeah, we, you know, we need to do more to reach our community so long as it doesn't change us. Yeah, it didn't happen overnight. Sure. I think uh, originally there was some concern about what was happening in the church. But Mm -hmm. again, most of the members would only be there on Sunday morning. So one of the things we also started was a program through scouting. It was a a police uh, scouting program. So folks who were hoping to become police officers someday, uh, the young boys and girls both, would be in this program. And they started doing security for us on Sunday morning. So they started to talk with our members, the members started to talk with them, and within a few months I noticed that the old German members were bringing cookies and mm. candy and lunches <laughs> and, and, and gifts, and then they would invite these kids to come in to worship with them. And it was just a wonderful way to watch the barriers just crumble Mm -hmm. uh, between language and culture and age. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the older folks really got to know these young folks and appreciated so much that the building that we had could be used for their benefit and for their future. So it was a good good experience overall. So the point is, uh, I've been in urban settings and inner city settings, and um, when I left Hartford, I was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I was the chaplain uh, to a local prison and a chaplain to a mental health hospital. And so I felt comfortable with the... Mm -hmm. You know, I feel comfortable with the people that I see on the streets of San Francisco. It was a natural fit for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when did you come here? 
I arrived in San Francisco. It's funny, people remember the day they moved to San Francisco, right? <laughs> March 23rd, 2001. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't know why we do that. <laughs> right? But it's a significant time in our life, I guess, when wow. we finally moved to San Francisco. Mm. So I've been here about 15 years. Okay, okay. I think about the mantra of a lot of congregations is, oh, hey, come as you are, and, um, you know, everybody is welcome. Except for not that part, or Except, not quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. It's a lovely tagline, but it's not true. It's not true, but this is <laughs> completely that, it right. sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, we, we call ourselves open cathedral, and we're literally outdoors. There are no barriers to keep anyone from coming in and receiving mm -hmm. what we have to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the only thing, we do have one condition um, we, we always start our worship with donuts and coffee and juice. Uh, we have a great donut shop that gives us their day-old donuts, okay. right? And, uh, but the rule is they can't feed the pigeons before church. They can only feed the pigeons <laughs> after church, and you know why. <laughs> so, it's wow. probably a pretty good rule. Yes, <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh, man. So I just imagine that that there have just got to be some incredible stories of things you've seen, people you've talked to. You just have a couple that you just maybe want to want to share. Sure, I think it's both uh, lovely and wonderful stories, and also stories that just kind of wrench your heart. Yeah. You know, they're so sad. Uh, it, it's a it's amazing when people are open and honest the depth of despair and hurt and pain and suffering they've had, right? Um, and so, uh, I'll, I'll think of of um, you know one story th that is incredibly exciting, I think. So I, I was talking with a gentleman. Uh, I was walking into a donut shop just to say hi to the folks that run it. It's a 24-hour donut shop, and mm -hmm. they've been great friends of Night Minister. On rainy nights, they let us sit in there, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so we can have our conversations with people who are having a cup of coffee and a donut. But I didn't make it into the donut shop because two doors down was a gentleman sitting on the sidewalk just weeping uncontrollably. So yeah, that's what we're there for, right? So I asked him if he wanted me to sit with him and talk for a little bit, and he said yes. And for the next two hours, he told me the story of his life. And um, I mean, I don't, I, I can't imagine how one person was dealing with all of those issues at the same time. Within two weeks, he found out that he was HIV positive. Uh, he lost his job. His wife of 15 years left him with his five kids and moved back to Texas. He was evicted from his apartment, and all of his friends then said, well, too bad, you're on your own. So he was feeling really alone, and he was suicidal, and he was um, he had his plan already in place. So um, mm -hmm. he was he was ready to kill himself that night. Yeah. So two hours conversation, you know, to hear his story, but also to begin to help him put a plan together on how he might address not everything all at once, but just 
how he could take care of himself and how he could see maybe a future, mm-hmm. even if he could only see a couple of days at a time. And we got him to a point where he thought that he could uh, see himself alive for a week. And his primary goal in his plan for that week was to have some contact with his ex-wife because he had so much anger and resentment in his heart, but he knew that he needed to let go of that and at least say, you know, I care for you and I understand why you had to leave. And um, we made an appointment uh, to meet a week later um, and he didn't show up. And then I never heard from him. Until about a year later, I walked into a bar, and this man lunged at me and gave me one of the tightest hugs I've ever had and wouldn't Mm. let go. I had Mm. no idea who it was, Mm -hmm. and I had no idea why I was being hugged like that. And then when he stepped back, finally, it was this man. Mm. And in that year's time... He had been to Texas. He had reconciled with his wife um, and had gotten to know his kids better. He was sober. He was in a work program. He had a nice place to live. And um, he had a smile on his face like you mm. couldn't believe. So, mm. wow. um, so we have many, many stories like that where people are facing incredible odds and trying to keep their life together on a lot of different levels. And maybe it is just one conversation can make all the difference. And, um, and I still see him periodically. Yeah. And he's still doing well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The step that you're able to be there and be a part of the transformation and, and healing process on some some in yeah. some way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, so not all the stories are that dramatic um, we know that uh, that there are people who are always despondent or sad uh, and you know maybe they're chronically suicidal they're always thinking about suicide and we think that we have um, uh, an opportunity to continue to keep them from ultimately taking their lives. We know that uh, more people will commit suicide if they're chronically suicidal. They're thinking about it all the time because it's just so much a part of their life and um, they're more apt to find a plan and, and execute that plan. Um, so we think that... Um, we're keeping a lot of people from taking their lives mm-hmm. because they might simply appear to be sad or withdrawn, but they're in a dark place mm-hmm. and they may not tell us how dark it is, um, but we know, you know. And you're encountering them, and, yeah. and you know, in, in ways that they may, you know, everybody else might be just walking by, but you're intentionally there to, to be present and, and to listen. That's right, and 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 maybe attuned to Chris and I are walking. We'd miss it, uh, right. but you're 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 paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eye contact as we're walking around is very important. So yeah. um, we're looking to make sure that if people really want to talk with us, you know, we're not, 
um, we're not looking at all the other distractions of the nighttime, you mm-hmm. know, that we're, we're looking at people and we're looking at their eyes and we're not walking fast. You know, we're, we don't want to give the impression that we have some place to go or something to do that if they want to stop us and chat with us for a while um, or tell us their story or ask for that prayer or blessing uh, that we're happy to spend some time with them and do that. I, uh, I was reading the, the night ministry, uh, the book, uh, was it listening as fast as I can? And I love that title. I'm listening as fast as I can, but the, uh, it referred to the night ministry saunter. Is that right? Yeah. Did yeah. I get that right? Yeah. It's I talk saunter. about it as the night ministry saunter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just imagine walking as slowly as you can and then turning it down yet even a notch. Mm. I mean, really, there's no reason to be moving too fast through any neighborhood. Um, and there are a lot of people out, you know. Mm-hmm. And so just to get a sense of who they are. And while we're walking, you know, we may not have conversations constantly. It's a wonderful opportunity to pray for these folks anyway, mm-hmm. to pray for the city of San Francisco, to pray for the churches that are sleeping so that when the day starts, they can be energized and and focused on what their ministry and mission is. Mm-hmm. We sometimes uh, call ourselves the church's night shift. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there aren't that many of us out there at night. Mm-hmm. Occasionally we see a Salvation Army truck or a City Team Ministries truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, they provide coffee and hot chocolate in the middle of the night sometimes, but they're not out there nearly as regularly as we are. The, the way you describe your work and your ministry, um, and, and from what I've also read and heard, it's you know trying to communicate love and, and, and grace and and presence in the midst of, of some what can be some very profoundly difficult uh, times and experiences I think of a lot of the ministries that I've run into as I walk around in various cities that I've lived in at night and it's not that it's the Bible clutching uh, track handing out kind of thing that's that's people's experience of of church and and uh, too often I think people equate well it's all the same the people who aren't um, familiar with it I guess and this is a long convoluted way of getting at what misunderstandings about the church do you run into because you're wearing a clergy collar at night walking on the streets you know and it's full of symbolism for people that's maybe not helpful Right. So usually we get one of two reactions. So either people recognize this as representing the church and they've had a good experience in the church or they know that for the most part people who represent the church can be trusted, are safe, and might be there to listen. Right. Um, but then you're right. There are a lot of people who have been hurt by the church. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly people in San Francisco who identify in the LGBTQ spectrum Mm -hmm. and they hear from their preachers when they're kids that uh, you're sinful and you're going to hell Uh, not to mention the fact that um, you know the church even organizes uh, and spends a great deal of money uh, 
to prevent gay and lesbian people from experiencing all the rights that that now are in place. So mm-hmm. I'm just thinking recently um, when the Roman Catholic Church and the Mormon Church became partners in trying to keep California from allowing same-gender marriage to be legal. Mm-hmm. And so people look at that and they say, oh, so the church has this agenda that has a huge impact on my life. And when they see someone who represents the church then at night, we can and sometimes do become a verbal target mm-hmm. uh, for their uh, confusion or their, uh, their disapproval or their hatred. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. But when it does happen, it's a wonderful opportunity to say, tell me more about how you were hurt by the church. And people are very willing to do that. And mm-hmm. what my goal in that conversation would be is to uh, not necessarily defend the church. I have some of my own issues about organized church, but to get them to a place where they can begin to feel some sense of reconciliation with people who are part of the church um, I spend a lot of time talking with people who have left the church and are defiant in their anger and resentment to the church uh, to talk about how you know, I'm part of a movement within the church that is schismatic and that there is, some, there is a legitimate place for us in the church uh, you know, to be uh, uh, actively working for change. We don't have to leave the church in order mm-hmm. to let the church know that we disapprove of some of the church's polit- policies and practices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm wondering if there's just maybe one more story. Um, I know you probably have a hundred stories, but one story as you look back over over your time in night ministry, another one that sticks out for you. Sure. Just now, I'm, I'm trying to s- narrow it down. Okay. Really. All right. Five more stories. <laughs> <laughs> Quick. Yeah. So, right. Um, the uh, so one of the things that makes night ministry unique is that uh, someone can call our crisis line, and they can ask to meet a night minister face-to-face. So we can get calls to a hotel room or an apartment or um, we try to also come up with a neutral place like a one of those 24-hour coffee shops. Mm-hmm. But one night um, the crisis line counselor paged me and said a couple were fighting. They were in the middle of a domestic dispute. He had threatened her to the point where she felt um, that her life was in danger. Didn't want to talk to the police because he was undocumented and didn't want to have him deported or put in jail, but wanted to have him stop this behavior. So she called night ministry. And so I talked with this woman for a little bit and determined that um, I would not be in danger. So I drove to the house um, and they were 
It was an unusual arrangement. They were renting two back rooms, but the landlord didn't know that they were in the building. I had to crawl into their two rooms through a bedroom window, mm. and that's when I met this gentleman who was being abusive. And so uh, I asked the woman if if he and I could just spend some time together, and. Uh, Oh my gosh, you know, his life story was incredible. Uh, a lot of trauma as a child, a lot of trauma as a young adult. And I think he was simply at a place in his life where he was so uh, unsure about who he was and what he wanted to be and where he wanted to be. And he found that this relationship, um, while it was beneficial in some ways, was was just challenging him more than than he really wanted to be challenged at the time and so he was more frustrated with himself than he was with her and didn't know how to you know just handle himself in this relationship so i spent again about two hours with him and another two hours with the two of them and uh, we came up with a plan on how they could begin to uh, talk to each other, communicate better, gave them some resources uh, for counselors that they might want to see. And uh, again, heard nothing back for months. Mm. And then one night, walked into a bar again, and who do I see? <laughs> but this gentleman who again was delighted to see me and tell me how his life was going. They had separated but remained friends. He was now working uh, in, with a construction company. He was working to become documented. Um, he had quit drinking, which was also aggravating his anger. Mm -hmm. And he was at peace. And it was an incredibly lovely and wonderful story again mm -hmm. about how uh, sometimes people just get to the end of what they think they can handle. They just need a little extra support. And we were able to provide that again mm. that night. Mm. Even by crawling through a bedroom by window. crawling through a bedroom window. <laughs> just walking the streets of San Francisco, we never really know what we're going to walk into. Yeah. And there are drug deals happening all the time. There are people who are angry and fighting on the streets, people who are mentally ill, who are incredibly violent in their behavior, and they're screaming and acting out. There have been times when we've been called to be with people who have who said they were suicidal, so they said that they had guns or pills, and so we would go in and take those things away from them. I've thrown more than... Uh, my share of guns into the bay. Uh, that's one way for us to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it keeps those people safe in that moment. So that's what we do. So that's right. There are, the unknown is always there. Um, but I don't know. I, I can't imagine that, uh, just leaving somebody in their own space without a little help when they need it and they're asking for it so um. kind of ministry on the front lines in an open church <laughs> yes <laughs> correct yeah. 
thank you so much for 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 sharing with us. Yeah, it's yeah. my pleasure. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Lyle talked about his open air church service in the heart of San Francisco, where people light up cigarettes, crack open beers, and sometimes come high. But the number one rule is don't feed the pigeons. He talks about a church without walls, made up of runaways, drug addicts, homeless, the mentally ill, the suicidal. He talks about people who walk the streets of a city of over 800,000 people feeling completely alone. I'm reminded of a quote from, from Richard Rohr when he said, Where you are is where I will meet you. Where you are is where I will meet you. Every night for 52 years, the night ministers of San Francisco have simply met people where they were at, not judging or making rules, but simply engaging in the radical, the audacious act of listening, being concerned, and expressing love for the people in their neighborhoods. Where you are is where I will meet you. Now, What would it look like if we all took a simple, bold step of simply meeting people where they were at? And you don't have to go far. You don't have to go to some kind of exotic place to do that. Just start where you live. Meet the people in your neighborhood, in your town, in your life, and meet them where they are. People who may be hiding in plain sight. Adopt the night ministry saunter. Don't be in a hurry. Meet your neighbors in their pain, in their joy, in their triumphs, in their failures. You get the picture. Lyle shows us that the church doesn't need walls or even a whole lot of rules. Except for, you know, maybe don't feed the pigeons too soon or something like that. Perhaps a place to start for a church without walls is to walk with compassion, care, and love of our neighbor. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. To stay up to date with all the things going on in the Sandbox, sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate and review us on iTunes. Let us know what you think about the podcast and join us in the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see you. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.